Welcome, everyone. It's a good day to be in God's Word. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is the Bread of Life. Our program is presented by the International Disciple-Making Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism. Let me encourage you to learn more about the amazing work that we're doing all around the world. You can learn more about our work and how you can support it by going to traincpe.org. And to learn about our missions fellowship in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Today we conclude a message on why Christians fail. Actually, it's a more positive message than that. The lesson we're sharing with you is the key for understanding how to live a triumphant, obedient life to Christ. And if you're a true Christian, nothing sounds better than that. The key to living this life of obedience starts with understanding what lies behind three foundational commands for the Christian. Here they are. Colossians 2.6, As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk you in him. James 1.21, Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. And John 15.4, where Jesus commands that we abide in him. God has made us to be filled with him, but he can't fill anything that is already full. So we must live always empty to be receiving him in his power. And it is only in the exchange of his life, filling the emptied life, that we can live in obedience. You'll fail living for Jesus if you try it any other way. And then having emptied you, he cleansed you out of all the defilement of your sin. And then he poured himself into you as his precious vessel and possession so that we have this treasure, Paul says, in earthen vessels that the glory and the majesty may be of Christ. You were redeemed by Jesus to be emptied and then to be filled afresh with God himself. And that's what happened. Now, to live the Christian life, you're going to have to be living that reality over and over and over again. Emptied to be filled, emptied to be filled, emptied to be filled. It's God's grand, wonderful design. It's what God does in saving us. What is your part in this? What is our part in this? Well, we come before every decision in our life, before every temptation, with a trained attitude to let go of anything that is of self and sin. We are to confess it, repent of it, turn from it, empty ourselves down to complete meekness and humility and utter nothingness. And then for that decision and for that choice and for that moment before us, we take up the life and fullness of Jesus of God poured out for and into us so that we may live every day of our lives receiving with meekness, receiving the word that was already planted in us and us planted within him. Now, that may sound strange and mysterious because it has no correlation to the way in which the natural man lives. We live our lives grasping and clawing after truth and after possessions and after accomplishments and things. We live our lives drawn down to a constant battle to achieve or a constant movement to satisfy ourselves. Our calculations in our minds are what has been done to us and what we would do to others and how we equal things out and we create the balance for ourselves. There really are very few analogies in life to explain and to communicate this wonderful truth. The Lord Jesus himself is left to give us agricultural allegories or expressions or allusions to this truth. We're like a seed that has to fall in the ground and die or else we'll remain alone. But if we'll die, then we'll rise up and bear fruit. We're like a branch that's planted into a vine and we receive all of our life through the sap of his being and his existence. And unless we do that, 
we're nothing. But what we can do and what Paul realized and what James realized is there's a place we can go to understand what this life, this Christian life is like. We can go back to the moment in which we receive this Christian life. And we can see what God was doing and what God worked in us at that moment and say, this is how I'm to live from henceforth. And that moment, I confessed my nothingness, only my sin. I gave nothing to God, commending myself to Him, but pled only for mercy. And I offered myself up to Him to completely and utter self-abandonment. And then at that moment, He filled me with His life, this joyful, eternal life. And I was changed. And Paul says, and James say, now set your mark from there. Now plan the rhythm of your life from that event and live it over and over and over again. This is the precedent that was set at the beginning for how you're to live. You could say something like this, wait a second, I received Jesus once, that's all I have to do, right? Well, you believed him at the moment too, didn't you, for salvation? Having believed in Jesus, have you stopped believing in him? Well, I did that once. No, you believe and you keep believing. And Receiving, believing is receiving. And so if you believe in him, you're constantly turning to receive of him all of his life and fullness. You can say, well, I, I repented of my sin once. I don't have to repent again. I came to realize I was nothing before him once. Now I can just go on and plow forward ahead and do my thing and follow the rules and learn how to live a good life. And Well, if you've gone very long from the moment of your confession of faith in Jesus Christ, you've discovered that sin hasn't gone away. It still comes upon you and plagues you and it still gathers and around you and you have to repent over and over again. That's the sad reality, but that's the reality. Your sins that come before Jesus when you were saved were not the last of your sins and the selfishness you confessed and abandoned when you came before Jesus wasn't the last of your selfishness. And so there's a need to be always repenting, turning away from sin and self and turning over as nothing to Jesus so that he can fill you afresh. There's a mentality in the Christian life, in Christendom, among Christians, that the Christian life boils down to one point in time in which you repent and one point in time in which you receive Jesus Christ through saving faith. And from that point on, back in the past, what you have to do now is you just, you just have to kind of work it out. You just got to make it work. You got to do what you can with what you've got and you've got to perform and you've got to live and you've got to serve him and you've got to find out what the rules are that he gives you and just do your best. There's also a teaching that takes place among other Christians that what happened is that after you received Jesus Christ, you received this definite work of grace in which he came upon you and he forgave you and he cleansed you and he lived inside of you, but that your Christian life isn't complete until you experience another, what they call a second definite work of grace. That really to live and grow as a Christian, you have to come sometime after that first moment in which you realize that you've got to do it all over again. And just as you receive Jesus Christ to save you from the penalty of your sins, now you've got to receive Jesus Christ in a second definite work that it brings you to in order to lead you into a life of sanctification. And then they also offer that at that moment in time, there'll be signs that you've had this second definite work of grace in your life. Maybe you'll, you'll start speaking in tongues. Or you'll be able to do signs and wonders and you'll be able to live with this kind of magnificent, exuding power that everybody will recognize and see from your life. Well, there are a lot of individuals that have a problem with that. They're a little nervous about this idea of a second definite work of grace, as if somehow God didn't quite get it finished. But the people that believe in the second definite work of grace would basically think that uh, if you just receive Christ for salvation, but you don't have this other work, you're kind of like a half-formed Christian. 
So you've got to have this other thing take place in your life. I don't, I don't know that I believe in a second definite work of grace. I don't believe in it because I think it's, uh, I think it's limiting. It's too, it doesn't go far enough. I was at a pastor's conference a number of years ago. I was speaking to a group of independent Bible church leaders. There were about 75 of them. I spoke on revival. I used, the, uh, to a large extent, some teaching that was provided by Martin Lloyd-Jones. When I was done, there was a question and answer time, and one of the individuals at the question and answer time asked me, listen, I, I'm hearing some echoes in what you're saying, and I want to know, do you believe in a second definite work of grace? I said, yes. It was, you couldn't hear a stone drop in the room. There they began turning around and looking at one another. They started whispering in one another's ears. I just stood there as a pause for a moment. And then I said, I believe in a second definite work of grace. And then I believe in a third definite work of grace. And then a fourth and a fifth and on and on. And it is, it is this. It's this principle. As you have received him, so walk you in it. it this principle, receive with meekness the engrafted word that has been implanted within you. It's this principle, abide in me and I in you. It's those principles and I believe in them. But here's the point. You can't receive that second definite work of grace and that third and that fourth and that fifth until you receive the first. And at the first, what you did was you repented of your sin and yourself. And in meekness and total abandonment and emptiness, you received Christ as your Savior. And having done that, the command of God is do it again and again and again and again and again. The way forward into our life, the way forward into victory, the way forward into utter obedience to the commands of God that are not simply produced by your own flesh and become just an ethical act at Phariseeism, all of it requires an utter emptiness and brokenness on your part lived out day in and day out so that again and again and again you might receive the fullness of his life, empowering you and enabling you to glorify him and honor him. But listen, just like you have to come to the first to get to the second, you've got to get to the second to get to the third, and the third to get to the fourth, and the fourth to get to the fifth. And do you see? There are some people who say, well, I've just come to the first, and I'll just stop there, and now I'll do it on my own. I'll just give me the rules, give me the way to do it, and I'll follow it. And I'll just get into the system of the church. I'll learn what the rules are. I'll follow the culture. I'll find out when I have to attend and when I don't have to attend. And I'll, I'll read my Bible and I'll do all these things. And they can develop all the kinds of commitment to their faith that a Muslim will commit to his faith or a Buddhist might commit to his faith. And it just goes on and on and on. But they've just found a point at which they decide, I'm going to believe this thing and I'm going to follow this thing and I'm going to buckle down. And But they're not living out their faith as they received it. And the question then is whether they've received it at all known it at all. So I would say that if this is not happening in your life, if you're not finding yourself at some points in your life, moving to the second great movement of the grace of God, coming upon the repentant and totally abandoned person to the next movement, to the next movement, to the next movement, it's possible, it's quite possible, you never really came to the first. Some time ago, I was dealing with a person who was determining to leave their spouse. They had attended a church most of their lives. They'd gone to Christian schools and Christian colleges, and they dreamed of being in ministry, and they were active members in a church, and they were good at doing it too. I called upon them. I told them that now was the time in which they were to live out their salvation, that now was the time in which they were to come to Christ and complete and utter surrender and abandon themselves to his will as nothing, and trust that Christ would fill them and empower them with his life to live out that obedience, regardless of what the outcome would be, regardless of the experience, to God's glory and the honor, and that this would be the pathway to ultimate joy and fulfillment in their life. 
They have to let go of their possessions and their sins and their plans and their desires in the middle of the difficulty and challenge and what looked like certainly a cross before them that they were to die upon, they were to go out empty and say, Lord, I surrender myself completely to you and your will and your filling above everything else. There was a pause after I made my argument to them. And then the response was, I won't. I will not be your guinea pig. All they had claimed to believe over all that time and all that exercise of church life and Christian life that they professed in the pinch of difficulty was nothing more than experiments for some crazy unproven science. They wouldn't do it. But if you've known the moment of desperation in repentance and the moment of absolute abandonment in which you yielded yourself up to God and said, God, come save me and deliver me. And then you've known the joy of completely being completely emptied and then completely full of God. That's the saving moment. Then you know where you need to go to live the Christian life. So let's go there. Over and over again, this is the nature and the necessity behind every command. Let's bow our heads. Well, thank you for listening to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, let me suggest you go to one of two websites. First, go to traincpe.org. traincpe.org to learn more about the work we're doing all over the world to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Or to learn about our work in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.